0: And if you have your Bibles, uh, keep them open to Acts. We're just going to walk through it, um, going to walk through it today. And basically, the big idea of today is we're going to talk about, through this passage, what to do, um, as a follower of Jesus, what to do when we find ourselves in a season of waiting, um, when we find ourselves just in the posture of having to wait on God, or the in-between moments of life, where it's like, you expected this, it's not here yet. And, and what do you do in that moment, in, in the moment of waiting? Uh, one of the biggest moments of waiting for myself and my family, my wife and I, I didn't tell you I was going to tell the story, but it's happening, um, was uh, we were waiting for our second uh, our second kid to be born, um, Blakely, and she was um, just very, just like she is now, just on her own time, right? And so um, they kind of stayed the same all the way through. Um, our oldest son, Barrett, they, well, the doctors first, they tell you a due date, and I think they don't have any idea what they're talking about, right? They're like, this is the date I'm going to give you, but it, like but the odds of you getting that, like how many of you were actually born on your birthday? Do you have does anybody know? Like I have one in the room, Well, you? Two, look at the odds, all right? That's how it is. Um, anyway, so our oldest son Barrett was born two weeks uh, ahead of the, his due date. Our uh, middle daughter was born two weeks after her due date and our third daughter was born right on her due date, right? Like the porridge was just right, so. Um, so that was, that's our journey and our story of just our kids. But what was interesting about our second kid is because our, our oldest son Barrett was born two weeks early. I remember my wife got off, uh, she was teaching at the time and she got off work uh, for maternity leave and was like, Oh, I'm going to have two weeks just to kind of prepare. I'm going to get my nails done. I think it was something like that. Like we're just going to have some space and some time. And like Friday, she gets off of work, says bye to her classroom. And then Sunday morning, no, Sunday evening, um, while I'm, I was a youth pastor doing some youth stuff, she texts me and she's like, baby's coming. Right? Like, so she got a whole two days of rest ready to go. And then our, our middle daughter, we decided not to find out if it was a boy or a girl. And so we were just in this anticipatory, like, like we're like, what's it going to be? Like, we thought for sure it was a, a boy. I grew up with all brothers, so I was scared to death to have a girl. So I was like, please, Lord, let it be a boy. I know what to do there. Um, But what happened was like the due date, like we get, we get to, because our oldest son was born two weeks before the due date, we get with Blakely to two weeks before the due date. And in our minds, like that's when you should have a baby, right? That's when that should happen. But it doesn't happen. And then we get to the due date and we're like, well, for sure it has to be now. Right. And then that doesn't happen. And then two weeks later, finally, like finally. So in our minds, if here's the due date, and we expected this, and it was here. Like, we waited three years is what it felt like. We we're waiting so long for this baby to come. And finally, she comes. But we had just this, and it's, it feels small now, but I remember in the moment, it felt like we were just waiting forever. Like, we had just, we were just thick in the waiting. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what it felt like to us. And how many of you enjoy waiting? How many of you, like, that's, that's something you look forward to? Nobody. Nobody likes to wait, but we spend a far amount of our lives waiting. We spend a, f- a fair amount of our lives waiting, don't we? We spend time waiting maybe for a response for a job offer or that career to finally take off or our business to become what we hoped it would be. We spend time waiting in line. We spend time waiting for a raise. Maybe some of you are like, you're waiting for a spouse still. We spend time waiting for a baby or a child. Maybe it's been years or waiting for a change that we've like hoped to see in a loved one for years. Like we spend a lot of our time waiting. I think it's safe to say that's something we've all experienced in here in one degree or another is that season of just liminal space of in between. And if we think about it, waiting seems to kind of be baked into the plans and promises of God. Abraham gets this promise that he is going to be I'm like the father of father of many children of nations. Like you can't count, count the stars, count the sound. More than that, but he waits forever. Like the majority of that scripture story of Abraham is him just waiting. God, you've promised. God, you've promised. Israelites are like they're waiting for the promised Messiah. Exile for 400 years, waiting to come back to the land. Scripture is just filled with people anticipating and waiting. For God to fulfill His promises, even now with us in the church, two thousand years later, where Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom of God, but we still live in the not yet. Like right now, the church we're in we're in the season of waiting for Christ to return, for Christ to fulfill His promises. What do we do as disciples of Jesus when we find ourselves in that waiting? What is our posture? What are we supposed to do? And this is where we find today in the story of the scripture we're going through. We're going through the end of Luke and we're going through the beginning of Acts in the season of the church called Eastertide, um, which is 50 days of celebrating Easter. That's what we're in right now. So happy Easter again. We're celebrating Easter. And if you remember last week, Nick taught at the beginning of Acts that Christ ascends into heaven where he rules and reigns as king. And what we talked about last week a lot was what is the kingdom of God? Like like. Jesus came and and announced repentance and entering into the kingdom of God. And what Nick highlighted too from someone else was this, that that what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's space. If you think of like an earthly king, this is what his kingdom is, right? The king's power, his rule, reign, and authority over the people that are his, his, his people in the space that is the king's. And that is what the kingdom of God is. The king's power over the king's people in the king's space. And the disciples here, where we find them today, just like, well, we'll rewind a little bit from yester, from last week. The disciples, they are ready now for this kingdom. Jesus ascends. He gives them, like, you're, this is what you're going to be about. This is what your mission is of making disciples of all the nations. He is resurrected. And the people ask in verse 6 in Acts chapter 1, like, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? like, come on, Jesus, like, let's go. This is the time, right? And let's look what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says in Acts 1, 7, 8. They're asking him, is it the time? Is now the time, Lord? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. I think we need, we need to hear that for a second. It's not for us to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. Power has not come for that mission. The Holy Spirit has not come yet. I need you to do something first. Rewind just a few verses if you're in Acts 1. Rewind from that. Verse 4, Acts 1-4, this is what he says to them. On one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus loved to eat after his resurrection, he gave them this command. Here's what it says. Do not leave Jerusalem, but what? Wait, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells him to wait. Like, wait. Jesus says wait. Has Jesus ever asked you to wait before? Like, wait. Sometimes we think when Jesus answers prayers, it's, it's, it's this or that, but sometimes just, just wait. I need you to wait. A posture and an answer of Jesus is to wait. And sometimes he tells us to wait. And waiting is hard because it often reveals um, our need for control and then our lack of it, right? Waiting is hard because it actually starts to like, show us that we're actually dependent. We're, we're dependent on God. We're dependent on others. I'm looking at babies in the room right now and just recognizing, look how dependent they are in you. And in that same way, like, we are actually dependent on God. And we like to think ourselves, especially as Americans and in the West, like, we are, like, we like to think ourselves as dependent people. I do too. And God says, wait, because you actually need something. You need help from above. You need the gift from my fathers. And sometimes in waiting, we can think, like, have I done something wrong? Have I got off track? Is God listening anymore? And this is kind of where I can imagine the disciples are today. They are in the waiting space. They've had a whirlwind of the last couple events. Um, the last week of Jesus in Jerusalem was Holy Week. Jesus, if you remember, in the upper room, washes their feet. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is tried. Jesus is crucified. Jesus dies. He is buried. And then he's resurrected. And then he, he stays with them for 40 days, like teaching them about the kingdom, interpreting scripture, like eating with them. And then he ascends. And that's where, like, that's, everything's happening like this. And then in two weeks, we're going to celebrate Pentecost. It's like the birth of the church. It's like the church's birthday. We get to celebrate that on June 5th. Like, be here for that. Like, we want to celebrate together. But if you notice in this space, they have this ascension, this huge thing. And then they have Pentecost, which is going to happen in Acts 2. The Spirit's going to fall. Like 3,000 people are going to be baptized and start following Jesus. This incredible moment. And then in between, you just have these waiting days. And we know from the time it was 10 days. It was 10 days of waiting. Jesus says, wait He says, it'll happen in a few days. They have no idea how long. It's 10 days. And so here they find themselves in that space. You just need to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the gift that I'm going to pour out. What's interesting about this is that Jesus doesn't have to do it this way, if you think about it. Why does Jesus, I'll go back to this, why does Jesus have them wait 10 days? Like, I think, like, he could have ascended into heaven and in some ways, like, tag-teamed the Holy Spirit and was like, you're in, let's go. And, like, they could have started the mission. They could have been going. But instead, Jesus has them wait, and I think that is, it's, it's, it's important for us to see that. It's important for us to, like, like think through. Even when you read Scripture, like why? like, why? Like, why are you, why wait? What happens in that waiting? He makes them wait, it seems to me, that he makes them wait in the same way that God makes us wait. Because in the waiting, God produces something in us. In the waiting, whatever it is in life, God, God actually begins to form something in us. God begins to sometimes like chisel away stuff, maybe that we thought this, like I thought this is who I was. I thought this was who God was. I thought this was how my life was supposed to be. And sometimes in the waiting where it's hard, God actually begins to, to do something to form something. James, later in the New Testament, says this, James 1, 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials like this of many kinds. I'm not even going to name one or two. Many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith, and when you read faith, read trust. Testing of your trust, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, what? Mature and complete not lacking in anything. One of the things the Spirit does in waiting, in my life too, as much as I push against it sometimes, is it's a way of maturing and growing up. If you have kids, that's what your hope and dream is for your kids, right? Not that they stay 13, but that they grow up into mature adults. Same with God, that we grow up not lacking in anything. So he tells his disciples to wait. And as we go through our passage today, um, between Ascension and Pentecost, on which I just want to look at the disciples and ask, what do they do in the waiting? Like, what is their posture in the waiting? And what do we learn from that? And so we're going to be in Acts just one, one twelve, and through the rest of that story. It's a long one, and we don't have time to hit everything, so just going to hit a few of those today. But what do we do in the waiting? The first thing is the disciples practice obedient trust. They actually practice obedient trust. Read verse uh, 12 with me says this, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. It's, that walk is like downhill, like really steep, but it's really quick. Like it's a Sabbath day walk. You can get through the gate of Jerusalem. It says this, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So listen, the apostles returned to Jerusalem. If you remember just a little bit before, um, if it's up there, what's the command that, that Jesus says? On one occasion, while they were eating with them, he gave them this command. Not a suggestion, not a maybe this, but a command. The command is do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. And then what we see in this passage is this. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives. We read in verse four that Jesus commands this. And what do they do? They do it. They return to Jerusalem. And listen, they didn't need to. In fact, it, like, we can't think that that was a no-brainer, obedient moment for them. In one sense, if I'm them, Jerusalem's the last place I want to be. A month before, they killed your Messiah. Like, not, not, like, just, like gave a, they killed him. They killed him. Like, that's what happened a month before. You're his followers. You're his number one guys. Like, going back to Jerusalem, like, that's a, that's a ticket on your head. They go in there knowing that. I can imagine just the city is full of confusion. A body is missing. Some of these little Jewish sects are starting to say, like, we th- he's resurrected. And can you just imagine the power dynamics in that? So they, it's not a no-brainer return, but they listen to Jesus anyway. They return to Jerusalem. We know some of them started to leave on the Emmaus Road. We we've taught through that some of them later have like they've encountered Jesus in Galilee like some are going home they have maybe jobs to get back to to try to start up again they've been following Jesus for 3 years like like they don't have to return but they return to Jerusalem and i think sometimes in the days of waiting when they come it's an opportunity for us to lean into and obey Jesus and that's like the first thing we ask in a question like where where is Jesus asking me to obey and to trust him in the waiting, even when it doesn't make sense? Obedient trust is not just a knowing about what God says, but it's a doing of what God says. And trust, it's not just like a, it's, it's not just like a, I, I, like God will do his promises. It's like a hope-filled, God will fulfill his promises. I'm obediently trusting God. Um, big part in our life where we had to learn this for Liz and I was, um, when we were just first married I was a youth pastor in Orange County um, and we just knew like and how it works like at least in this denomination I was in it's like I, I came in as the worship intern and then like the junior high pastor left and then it's like tap you're it you know and then then the high school pastor left and I'm like all of a sudden I'm a high school youth pastor and I'm like okay we're doing this now and, and I love students and I love that but I really like wanted to I, I felt in my life at that time felt like I was supposed to step into worship ministry and a call and so we started talking to our lead pastor at the time going like hey we sense we're supposed to step into this. And he was like, yeah, I see that as well. Um, and then just a series of three years of God pressing pause. And when I look back on the season, none of it was like, "No, there was no sin. There was no, like, sin in someone's part. There was no one being a jerk. It's like these waiting that began to happen. It just happened. And in it, I think there was a, there was a formation thing that happened for us. And I remember it was 2008, and I remember we hit the financial crisis, and like, I remember our lead pastor like, we can't make any moves right now. Like, like, we're just like, it's money's low. Like, we can't do anything. It's like, okay, like, we will sit tight for a while. And then a year later, we hired a youth pastor. And then, like, in a couple months after that, or like a year after that, I would say, they had a family crisis. They had to move away, and I had to stay in the same spot. And it was just like, God, what are you doing? And then a friend of mine says, like, hey, I think you should check out this position. I think you'd be a great fit for it. And I said, where is it? And he said, it's in Bakersfield. And I said, I will never move to Bakersfield, which is everybody's trope. But we love it here. Like, we've been here 10 years. Like, that was the journey of that, of just this waiting. But I remember what God formed in that, of just this, like, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? And often in that season, we tried to hunt for the why. God, why are you having us wait? What is the reason? And if we are always searching for the why, we're invited in this story to wonder. But if we're always searching for the why, we're, we're being asked to do something we're not really leaning into obedient trust. What we're really doing when we focus so often on the why we're waiting, like what's the purpose for it, is we, we, when we find that purpose, we're like, oh, the purpose is why I'm waiting. And one of the things I want to say about the disciples is they look towards God. They look towards God in this moment. They, they trust Jesus' word. They're not too concerned about the length of days and waiting. They're more concerned about who they're waiting for. They're waiting for the presence of of God. They're waitful for the f***ing. I've waited long enough. The waiting's been too long. They practice obedient trust. And the second thing we want to look at is this. They practice unified prayer. They practice unified prayer. Once the disciples got to Jerusalem, they didn't just like hang out. They actually did something. They go to the upper room and they do something specific. Look at verse 13. Continue in verse 13. Dr. Luke, who's writing this book, tells about who is there. He says, the pr- those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We don't know exactly what their prayer is, What exactly they prayed, we don't know, but we do know, like, how they prayed. And how they prayed is they remembered Jesus' word. They, like, they remembered Jesus' word that said this in Luke 11. If you then know, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We assume they start praying that. We don't know exactly what, I can assume that, but we just know how they prayed. They prayed in unity. They prayed together together. Luke gives us the apostles list. He says they joined together. And at first, when we hear they joined together, we're like, yeah, they accepted the group me invitation. This was the time of the meeting. They came together. They did it. Congratulations. They accepted the request. But there's more happening here. That word joined together is a lot stronger than how we think joined. The NASB translated this way, and I like this. NASB says this, they were of the same mind. When it says they joined together, like the other way of saying it's like they were the same mind. This word here is like a unifying mindset together. The word has like purpose to it. It has intention to it. It's not just I showed up, but it's like we showed up doing something. We showed up with, with an intent in mind. It reminds me of St. Paul when he later encourages the Philippians to, he says this, make my joy complete being like-minded. Like church, we are to be like-minded. The disciples here are unified, and that should be unique to us because it's really hard to be unified. Or they just didn't, they simply didn't get it. Or they just completely disagreed with the way Jesus was going about his earthly ministry. Like they're, they're all over, they're all over the map. And here we find them obeying Jesus, and it says they had one mind. They joined together, and they start to pray to King Jesus. You have this eclectic group of people And now they're in one mind. What changed? What changed? I'm always amazed at who Jesus has in his crew of disciples. Always amazed. You have people in this group that have deep ideological divides. And they accompany Jesus as his disciples. Two of them mentioned in here. You have Matthew and Simon who couldn't be more different than each other. Matthew, in his old work, was a well-paid tax collector who colluded with the occupying Roman oppressive government that that his Jewish peers despised. In fact, the Jews would hate him as a traitor more than they would the Romans. Like, we despise this guy. You have him in one side. You have Simon the Zealot named up here, who was a jewish nationalist who strongly upheld jewish traditions and cultures he would have participated in plotting the overthrow of the roman government and so you have those two people i mean if you think right now that like our american um life is just divided like, like as, as it can be like the bible is not foreign to that division does that make sense like it's not like a new thing we just figured out as people go like oh man we're actually divided on a lot of issues no That's how it works sometimes. And Jesus brings them together, brings them to the bread and cup, brings them under his kingship and his lordship. There's division here, but something's different. You have Matthew who colluded with the government and Simon who wanted to burn the government down. Along with those two people, it says here that the women were there, the Mary, mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is the last time we hear of Jesus' mother in the New Testament, Mary. This is the last moment of that. After that, it goes silent. But you have her and you have her, his brothers. And the, one of the last times we see Jesus' brothers is in Mark 3, where Mary and the brothers go to one of Jesus' teaching meetings and they try to pull him out of the meeting. And the reason they do that is because they go like, he's out of his mind. Like, we don't, like he's gone mad, basically. They don't, he's claiming to be something he's not. His mother and his brothers do that. And here they are with a unified apostles, the mother, the, the women... The mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus. And what they're doing is they're listening to Jesus and obeying him. They're praying to God together. Like something's changed. What's changed? What's brought them together? What's brought them together was the encounter of the risen Jesus from the dead. Like, like this is like some like evidence of like something changed. Something Powerful and impactful happened. His resurrection affirms who he said he was. He was the Messiah that they were anticipating and expecting. So, this crew gathers together in obedient trust. They're praying to the resurrected king as a primary marker of who they are, the king's people in the king's place. And it says this not only did they join together, but this they joined together doing something, they constantly in prayer. They joined together constantly in prayer, and they prayed constantly. The idea is not a flippant prayer, but a persistent and fervent united prayer among them. And it strikes me here that even though they had this promise that the Holy Spirit would come, they were still committed in the waiting to seeking God for that promise. I'll say that again: they knew God's promises were to come; Jesus was going to be faithful. But what they didn't do is just put their hands in their pockets and be like, all right, we'll wait. I guess we'll just wait for it. But they do something. They begin to step into communion with God, and to worship with God, into asking God. God is faithful in His promises, but we faithfully wait by joining in prayer into that. One of the things that just, like, has hit me in this is, um, like, if I, like, show me, like, my prayer life. Show me my prayer life, how I talk and commune with God like like you I, you would probably see actually what my theology of god who god is and how i think of him is he distant is he near do i actually not have any say in in the in what god does in the world like show us your prayer life i'll show you how you think about god in some ways how you talk with him there's this deep communion with god together unified asking god like god you promised like, god you promised Sometimes Jesus allows us to wait to teach us how to pray alongside a community and not just to be dependent on us. They pray together. Maybe you are a family who waits for, like, the result of a biopsy. You're waiting for that. You're waiting for an unknown direction on a job, a married couple whose kids are kind of turning away from faith in Jesus. A frustrated stage of life you find yourself in that's just grueling and unending And in the waiting, we're actually beckoned by God to develop something. And that's a developing like a communion with him and actually pausing and listening and pausing and seeking. In the waiting, we're invited into obedient trust. We're invited into continued prayer. Honestly, this prayer piece for me as I was writing this and uh, a few of us just got back from a little men's summit this weekend and this was like the thing that my heart that God was like there, like that's what I, like, Brandon, one of the things that I do is I, I think I, I obey and I trust. But I almost, I do that. I go like, okay, well, God's just going to do it when God's going to do it. And I have no say in the matter. And something was like, oh, no, Brandon, like, you participate in this, like, in communion, in relationship, in prayer. And so even for me, like, this is like, oh, I'm, I'm not good at this. Like, I'm not good at this. And this invitation and the waiting of God saying, like, come, like, come into relationship with me is like, Don't you know that if a father, an earthly father, the scripture says that's evil knows how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask, who gives the Spirit? Let's continue uh, through the passage. This is the part we don't get to hit a whole lot, but we need to read it still. It says this, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So we kind of have an idea of how many people were in this prayer gathering, right? 120, it's not just 10, it's not just five, it's a lot of people, 120 people and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke. Long ago, through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Ugh. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that field in their language a kaldama, that is, field of blood. For, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place in leadership. And so things are happening in this prayer meeting. Again, we can't hit all of the stuff of like fulfilled scripture here. Um, Peter, like, calling back to the Psalms, reckoning their story. Like, Judas was a part of us, part of our ministry. There's so much, like, packed in here. But what we do see there is as they're praying, they're actually not just praying, they're searching the Scriptures. Like, they're searching the Scriptures for what God has. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room, teaches his disciples, like, how to interpret Scripture to point to him, the fulfilled Messiah. And you see them here kind of, like, starting to practice this. Peter saw in the Scriptures what must be fulfilled, that Judas was among them and they continue the mission of Jesus. And in this middle section, we've got these bracketed spots. Um, If you look in your Bible, it's in parentheses, and it almost feels like this interruption narrative. Like all of a sudden, Luke is really interested in letting us know what happened to Judas. And while he's doing that is Luke, um, Luke in Acts tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus, but never tells us what happened to him. And in Acts, all of a sudden, you have this interruption. Let's read it one more time, it's gnarly. With the payment he received for his witnesses, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. I mean, if that's not in a children's book story, like a Bible storybook, I always miss that part for some reason. But everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field, in their language, a that is field of blood. What we have here is this tragic moment. We have this tragic realization of what happened to Judas, who was called by Jesus, who was discipled by Jesus, who walked with Jesus for three years. And his his end is different than the other 12 apostles. It didn't need to be, but it was. And if in those 10 days of waiting, we get a picture of how the apostles faithfully trusted, the apostles obediently trusted Jesus and his word, the apostles unified in prayer, and we have this interruption in Judas, and what I see in here is this reminder in this picture of a life not lived in obedient trust. We almost have an anti-story here. The story of the apostles being trustworthy and an anti-story. And I actually want to look a little bit at just Judas' life to see that, to see what a life looks like that like, just stops trusting Jesus. Or, or a life where it just like pulls away from unity, like community, and a life that just begins to, to not seek Jesus and not seek prayer. But Judas gets interrupted in our story. and I think it's an invitation again to remember his story. From the chief priests and the elders of the people, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. Like, rabbi, my teacher, greetings. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. This is the moment. Judas betrays Jesus. And the one thing we're never told in the Gospels, the one thing we're never given truly like a, a clear answer on is why Judas betrayed Jesus. Why did he do it? We're never given a really clear answer on that. In fact, one scholar I read this week and I like this said that Judas's mot- motives must always be a matter of speculation for us. It's like it's left open. Like why? And I think the reason it's left open to speculation is actually it's an invitation from the scripture to kind of ask ourselves, like, examine our motivation of following Jesus or not following Jesus. It's this motivation. We don't know why, but we're invited into wonder and to see ourselves in the story. A couple for us this morning, a couple suggestions of speculations of Judas' moments have to do with his other name, which is what Judas, you know? Judas Iscariot. Iscariot's a tricky word to nail down exactly what it means sometimes. Um, We don't have a definitive knowing of it. It could be a region he's from, a a region he's from that is not part of Galilee where all the other disciples are. So maybe one of the reasons uh, Judas portrays Jesus is he feels like left out, like he's not part of the crew. He's not Galilean. Maybe he doesn't have the accent. And so maybe this is his opportunity for power his opportunity to like find glory and and to do something with his name and his life, that could be a possibility. Maybe Judas betrayed Jesus for greed. John tells us that Judas was in charge of the money purse. Like he had the bankroll and he would always take a few off the top for himself. Like, so maybe it's greed. He trades Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. My take is if if that's the case, it's the worst deal ever because he trades in his Lord. He sold his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. That's like the equivalent of um, six months worth of, worth of wage. Like three years of following Jesus and six months of wage. Like it just seems like, ah, it's, ah that's, that's hard if it's just greed. There's probably all of this in the mix, by the way. The specu- speculation that I find personally most compelling is that the word Iscariot could be a form of, which means of, of a Greek word which means dagger bearer. Dagger bearer. We know this is a, uh, a word of uh, a Jewish elites who they deemed to be collaborators. In fact, during the governor of Felix, the Sicarii actually killed the high priests in Jerusalem. Like So they were a revolutionary. They were like the most extreme, if you can think about it, in this city. The Sicarii were the extreme of the zealots. And so you have Judas Iscariot, maybe Judas Sicariot is kind of what some people could say. Some scholars think it's a valuable speculation. And so did Judas belonged to the Sicarii before he became a follower of Jesus. We can't know for sure, but I always think it's interesting in the listing of the 12 disciples, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, at least in Matthew and Mark, they're always put together. Like, could it be like a Zealot and a Sicarii? Like we see just like these, these fractions again in the disciples. And why I think that's important is this. Why I think it's a, it's a, I think it's, it's a good speculation is because i don't think it was likely that Judas ever meant for Jesus to die that he ever meant for it to go that far but instead betrayed him with the intention of forcing Jesus's hand to force his hand to do something wanting Jesus the messiah to be the Jesus to be the messiah that Judas expected him to be that maybe if i put Jesus in the right situation He would pick up the sword and get on with the Messiah program that we all know the Messiah should be doing and that is now the overthrow of the Roman government to force the kingdom of God back into Israel and if that's so Judas had this tragic experience of seeing his plan go desperately wrong and in bitter remorse he ends his life Matthew recounts the end of this and I always find this interesting as Judas as all this is happening how does Judas respond we know that Judas ends his life, but what are the things he does right before it? Matthew 27 3 says this Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. What does he do? He, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He brings it back. I changed my mind. I bring it back. Saying, I've sinned. And by betraying innocent blood, and they said, What is this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Matthew and Luke and Acts, they have different accounts of, Jesus's, uh, of Judas's death. Some try to harmonize them. Some see him as more theological than that, but they're different accounts, but they still tell us the same An interesting story here. This is tragic because Judas realized that what he participated in was not what he would hope happened. happen. He changed his mind. I've sinned. I see Jesus is condemned. What have I done? And tragically, he ends his life. I often wonder, Peter here is reminding of Judas. Peter also betrayed Jesus. Peter also denied Jesus. And it's speculation, but I wonder, like, if Judas would have stayed around. Like, would he have experienced the grace of God? Like, I don't know. But, like, he ends. It ends. You see, Judas, just like the rest of Israel, had been waiting. Waiting for years remembering the last revolt with the Maccabees and going, like, we want that again. They're waiting for Jesus to be this Messiah, to establish the kingdom of God, waiting for shalom, waiting for God to make things right. We're in the land you promised God, but it's not supposed to be like this. Like, we're supposed to be in charge, not, the, not these pagans. God, what are you doing? Why this judgment still? Here they are. Where are you, God? It's this lament. It's in this waiting season. And it's tempting in our waiting season, my friends, it's tempting in our waiting seasons to go the way of Judas which is to force Jesus to act like we think Jesus should act. To force Jesus to be who we think Jesus should be. And maybe part of Judas' betrayal of Jesus was his attempt to manipulate Jesus. His attempt to manipulate Jesus. Instead of obedient trust like we see the apostles take, sometimes we put ourselves in a posture where we get to force God to be the God we want and the timing that we want in the way that we want and we can step into ways of manipulating that. Well, I'm just going to do this and I'm just going to do this and, just, and, the, and say it's God that's doing it or just trust God to do this instead of actually obediently trusting in him. It's that invitation to us. J- Judas does not obediently trust but instead I think tries to manipulate Jesus. Second, if the apostles obediently trusted and they gathered in unity prayer, Judas did not trust, Judas did not stay in unity and did not look and seek God. It says this in Luke's account of Judas it says, then Satan, this is at the upper room right before, um, right before the Passover, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot who was, who was of the number of the twelve and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers about how he might betray them. Notice in this that Judas went away. He actually missed the Passover. He missed it with Jesus in in Luke's account. He went away from the disciples from Jesus. Judas does not confer with God of like what what should I do with this. Instead, who does he confer with? He confers with the chief priests and the officers. And here is our contrast for today: the apostles in the waiting in this waiting season. What the apostles do is they obediently trust and listen to Jesus. They trust in his promises, in his timings, in his coming, and in his power. They trust in that, that they seek God in prayer. They seek after his will. And it's a posture that positions them for what's coming in two weeks when we teach through it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the posture of an outpour, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's God, I trust you. It's God, I seek you. And I do that in a, in a unified community. Judas, in his misunderstanding and waiting, tries to manipulate Jesus in betrayal. He excludes himself from the unity of the disciples. He goes away. He is not persistent in continuing prayer, but instead confers with others, and he is positioned to receive another spirit. It says in verse 3 that Satan entered entered Judas, the Iscariot. We'll end with this today. In the waiting... Step into obedient trust. We pray in like unified prayer. And as it ends in this unique section, in this unique waiting, we have actually like a practice of this. So we know that they did this. And we actually see it put into practice when they choose who they choose. It says this in verse 21 Therefore, Peter's talking again, saying, I went through the Psalms, we need to replace Judas. And then he says this Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taking up from us. Really important. It's like they've been with Jesus. We've got to pick someone who's been with Jesus from the beginning. For one of these must become a witness to us with our resurrection. Here we get a really cool definition of the assignment of what an apostle is. An apostle is a witness to Christ's resurrection, who has been with him from, from his baptism of John to his resurrection. This is what the apostles are. They're witnesses to the resurrection. And when I, what I want you to notice in our last passage is the way in which the disciples continue their, um, their trust in Jesus. It says this, they nominated two men. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bar- Sabbath, also known as Justice, and Matthias. This fellow's got three names, right? That's, like, how do you get that job? I want that. They, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and that lot fell on Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. First thing's this, they nominated the two men. They did. So here's our unity again, of one mind. 120 people, and they nominate two people. Like, just think of that process for a second. Like, I'm sure everybody had their, like, oh, that person. Oh, that person. Oh, that person. But here they come together and they say, Here are two people who have followed Jesus from his baptism to his resurrection. And like, and these are the ones. We're seeking the Lord. We think these are the ones. They nominate two men. The second piece is this. Then they prayed. They just continue in this. Do you see this? And unifying. And then we prayed. We nominated two men, but we didn't just go like, ah, we're gonna choose one. They stopped, they sought the Lord. How do they pray? Lord, you know everyone's heart. I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. We all can mask and hide ourselves in different ways, right? We can. Like, God knows the heart. Like, God knows the heart. You know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you've chosen. Like, show us which one they've chosen or you've chosen. Show us when you've chosen, God. They pray. They seek God. They ask God, God, would you show us? They don't just wait for it. They ask. And finally this. It says they cast Lots And the lot fell on Matthias. Now, this is really strange to us because, and I've always wrestled with this, like, you're telling me, you're telling me the apostles decided the last, like, the next person's going to take it over by casting lots, by, like, rolling the dice. Like, that's how they did it. Like, this seems strange to us, especially in our Western mindset, because, like, we're like, that's not how you do things, right? Let's buy a house. Uh, Maybe roll a dice. We'll figure out where we're going to go. Like it's just it's like it's not something we act or we do, and to our Western logical, practical ears, this just kinda of seems silly. But first second, put yourself first century. This was a comment Near East ancient practice to make weighty decisions. She didn't know what to do, they would cast lots. In fact, it's like priests, this is how priests would choose who's going to do the work of the temple. They'd write everybody's name on a stone, they'd put it in a jar, they'd shake the jar, and then a stone would fall out. It's like God chose you, right? They just trusted in that sovereignty of God. It's likely that this is how the disciples chose. There's tons of opinions on this, of course. Um, for instance, like, there's a lot of issues with this. For instance, there's a lot of people who think, like, the disciples made a mistake here. Like, ah, they didn't wait on God. Like, if they would just waited a little bit longer, they would have found um, Saul of Tarsus, or his Greek name, Paul. And, and God, that that's actually should have been, because we never hear of Matthias or the other guy ever again. And so, like, they're like, oh, it's gotta be Paul. And like, maybe, I don't think so. I don't think so personally. So a lot of contention, like what do you do with this? But what I see here is a pattern of complete trust in the apostles. Here are two men, and then some of the sense they're saying, God, like we just need you to choose. We need you to choose. And whatever way that goes, we actually trust you. We trust that it was a work of God. We want you to choose. We want, we want to trust Jesus in this season of Waiting. We'll end with this. Sometimes Jesus' assignment for us is to wait. Sometimes that's his answer for us. Sometimes that's the season we find ourselves in. And I believe that sometimes Jesus has that assignment for us in waiting because it's in that waiting that he actually forms us in, in a couple things. Lots of things. But for today what we see is he forms us actually to, like, to begin to trust Jesus again. That James passage, it produces Perseverance. And perseverance, which has its full effect, produces maturity and completeness, lacking nothing. And this obedient trust. Maybe it's a place like, I've just stopped obeying Jesus in this arena. And the Spirit's invitation for you today is like to step back into obediently following Jesus for flourishing life. Not because the King is an overlord, but because the King wants to see our lives flourish in the kingdom of God. Maybe for some of us, there's been this disconnect of like communing, communing with God. Like almost like I've just stopped asking God for anything. Like the Spirit's invitation is, is no, begin to seek your Father again. Begin to seek the Father again, and what he has. What do we do in the waiting days? Where has our conversation be directed? Is it, is it persistent prayer? Are you with other disciples in that prayer? And I want to end with this: um, reading Romans eight, um, just as like a reminder of of God's character and a reminder of like who He is. And it's a lengthy section. It's not going to be on the screen. because I just want you to receive it, and then we'll go into a time of response. Romans eight, and maybe just for you, if that just means like I just need to close my eyes, um, or I'm often like for helps me like a posture of open hands. If that's an invitation for you. Romans 8, verse 27. says this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Sometimes we do not know what we ought to pray, but for the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that all things God works out for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. Christ intercedes on our behalf. Verse 35, we shall, <clears throat> sorry, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for the sake we face death all day long, we are considered to be sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 17, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going to go into a time of communion and a time of prayer. Um, And what I'd like to do is we're going to dismiss you to grab the elements as we just do a few songs in the back of response. Um, and in this, like, if you're in a season of waiting, I'm just, we had the sense this morning, too, that, like, if you're in a season of waiting, you're like, I just need prayer in this. Like, I just, I just need to, like, pray with somebody. Like, the apostles, they didn't just pray alone. Like, dear Jesus, like, they prayed with each other. And that should be, like, part of the life of the church. It shouldn't be odd. It shouldn't be weird. It should be, like, what we do. Like, would you pray with me in this? It's like, yes. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf, Jesus intercedes on his behalf. And often we experience that through each other interceding on each other's behalf. And so as we like respond and worship, there's gonna be people in the back just like willing to pray with you. Um, and so if that's like you and like the Spirit's prompting, like I just need prayer in this. Like I would like to encourage you to listen to that prompting and to pray with others as we worship. But as we worship, um, as the bandage comes up and we, and we play, would you're missed to grab the elements, there's wine and there's grape juice, there's gluten-free crackers.